Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is the Bug House Podcast. Bug House is a production of LiteratePe.com. The following podcast was recorded live on Monday, January 8, 2018, and featured artists Don Hall, David Himmel, David Barish, Risa McDonald, Joe James, and Brian Sweeney. We live in a time, it's always been the case that everybody has a right to their opinion. In this day and age, um, everybody not only has a right to their opinion, but they have unfettered access to present it to the world every single day, multiple times of the day. And one of the things that it, it occurs to me, and it occurred to me months ago when we were talking about this show, is that everybody has a right to their opinion, but their opinion only counts if they can communicate it persuasively. If they can't communicate it persuasively, all you're doing is screaming into a paper bag. About a hundred years ago, in fact, to this year, 2018, 1918, in Chicago, Washington Square Park was dubbed Bug House Square. It was called Bug House Square because Bug House was a pejorative for a loony bin from a, a mental hospital. And what was going on in Washington Square Park was that reactionaries and radicals and free thinkers were getting on soap boxes, actual boxes that they used to transport soap, and they would get on these soap boxes and they would argue about the issues of the day. About 50 years later, maybe 45 years later, Studs Terkel got involved in a new version of Bug House, and it kind of revived the idea of the Bug House Square. And so now, in the age of Trump, uh, literate ape decided that it was time that we needed to bring back the bug house the bug house debates and so what we've done is we have created here in Haymarket <laughs> pub and brewery see the history the Chicago history we have created a show called bug house it is the art of the dialectic so we have three topics that we're going to present for you tonight we have six writers and they are going to debate none of these writers got to choose which side of the issue they were on. That's part of the art of the dialectic, is to maybe argue a point that you don't agree with. Can you do it? Each writer has seven minutes to make their case. We have three topics. Topic number one will be gentrification. Boone or Bane? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? We'll find out. Second topic will be call-out culture. Is it destructive or instructive? Third topic, Michael Bay, hack or genius? This is Bug House! <laughs> Gentrification, Boone or Bane? The following stories are true. In 1889, Diwali Jackson woke up from a longish sleep. It was unlike him to sleep in, but the weeks leading up to this day had taken their toll on him. He rose, took a piss, scratched himself. His wife, Nan Hai, was already up and gathering the last of their belongings in one of three canvas sacks provided by the military. Neither spoke. They didn't need to. The night before, white men and women had rushed in ahead of the noon start time and had claimed land for themselves. Soon after, these line jumpers came to be called Sooners, as they had entered the land early and hid until the legal time of entry to get their hands on the most choice homesteads. President Harrison, one of the most inept and corrupt presidents in the history of America, had signed the Indian Appropriations Act and effectively took back the area given to the Indians following the genocide. Diwali sighed as his land was suddenly taken from him by whites who were like him, simply looking for a place to live and thrive. His anger had long since passed into a kind of knowing despair. These people streaming onto the countryside, these Sooners, weren't his enemy, yet they took, for him, took from him nonetheless. 
Following World War II, corporate corporal Isaiah Holloway used his GI Bill to get a college degree in engineering and moved he and his wife into a small bungalow in a village just outside of Philly. The neighborhood was clean and respectable and almost entirely made up of other black families like his. It felt safe. Despite his degree and his military service, he could only get hired for factory work, but it was honest labor and his day-to-day -day expenses were covered. Not much extra, but it was fine with Isaiah. His grandfather had been a slave, his father a sharecropper, so going to college and owning his own home was to him a huge step forward. A year later, the neighborhood was changing. The property taxes suddenly increased by 200%, and some of the families he had become friends with were selling their homes and moving into Philadelphia proper. Unlike them, Isaiah owned his home, but as more and more whites moved into his neighborhood, the more isolated he felt. He took out a mortgage on his bungalow to help improve his property some. The new people had money, and soon his home was looking out of place. One day, a white banker called him, informed him that he was behind on his mortgage payments and that the bank would be foreclosing in two months. Moments later, he received another call from another white man who offered to buy his mortgage and home for about 70% of the value. Isaiah was up against a wall and sold. On 19th Street, in the home where her mother died and her daughter was raised, Amalia Alejo scans the block, where she used to see Mexicans walking the streets and shopping at local stores. She's now started to see more Anglos, young and upwardly mobile, getting started in life with low rents and affordable utilities. In 2000, Pilsen was 89% Hispanic. In 2013, the neighborhood, neighborhood was 81.6% Hispanic. During that time, white residents increased from 8.2% to an estimated 12.4% of the total population, according to U.S. Census data. The whites made a lot more money than the Hispanics as well, by a margin of $20,000 per year per home. After a pit stop near Los Angeles, Mexico native Alejo moved to Pilsen renting a coach house apartment on 19th Street in 1975. Over the next few years, her brother died, then her mother. Soon after, she became a first-time mom to her daughter, Fabiola, and with her sister-in-law and her children, Alejo eventually moved into the property's main house that faces what is now the Museum of Mexican Art. After living in Compton, Pilsen seemed like a dream. It was so beautiful, she said. A lot of the stores spoke Spanish. I knew all of my community. In 1982, with the help of a neighbor, alone and some luck, Alejo was able to buy the house she was living in for $24,000. Over the years, the 70-year-old has helped other families save for homeownership by renting them a unit in her building below market rates. Her tenants often paid $600 or less in rent. Owning her own home made her feel accomplished, she said, and Alejo wanted to one day pass the 140-year-old house down to her adult daughter. But as new white residents moved in and property taxes continued to rise, Alejo didn't know if she could afford to keep the house. In 2016, after living in her own home for 34 years, Amalia had to sell to make way for a high-end coffee shop. Fictionally speaking, imagine David, yeah. a young white professional with his hipster skinny jeans <laughs> and his sweater vest, walking to a home in a neighborhood that is not his but with a copy of a lease in his hand. Diwali, Isaiah, and Amalia are sitting together in a local diner and they all three see David. Can you blame them for hating him just a little bit? The story is endlessly American. It is endlessly white. It is endless. Thank you.
And now for the other side of the question, the hipster David Himmel. <clears throat> Thanks. Yeah, let's talk about America. Apple pie, baseball, gentrification. Oh, you can throw in genocide and international warmongering in there if you want, but those are negative things. And while America has plenty of black marks in its past, present, and likely future, gentrification does not belong among them. It belongs among the apple pie and the baseball. The term, which was coined by British sociologist Ruth Glass in the mid-20th century, is defined by Merriam-Webster's as the process of renewal accompanying the influx of middle-class people into deteriorating areas that often displaces earlier, usually poorer, residents. Dictionary.com defines it as the buying and renovation of houses and stores in deteriorated urban neighborhoods. Let me ask you, show of hands here, or applause, who likes running errands? Yeah, right? All right, show by applause, who likes Target? The store, right? Who likes Target, right? That's it, really? Ah, oh, fuck it. All right, so think of how much better your life is with a neighborhood Target. You can get your clothes, your groceries, electronics, you can get prescriptions filled, all at one stop. You can't do that at a small business shoe store or a bodega or a radio shack or a standalone pharmacy. And those smaller stores, they employ only a handful of people. Each target employs hundreds. Sometimes those small stores are family owned and operated, so only one family makes the money. <laughs> With Target, with Target, hundreds of families are able to earn money. In some cases, with health benefits too. This would not be possible without gentrification, without the renovation of a deteriorated neighborhood. Yes, there is always some displacement as a neighborhood is improved, but displacement does not have to be a bad thing. Displacement brought people to America. It can save lives as it did when people fled Europe in the 1930s. Growth and prosperity most often comes from stepping out of your comfort zone. Gentrification in America often displaces a specific ethnic group that has been living and operated, operating in an ethnic bubble. That prevents inclusion. And it, and it promotes the idea that different ethnic groups are too dissimilar to live among one another, which breeds ethnic fear and racism. Hardly the melting pot America wants to be. If all ethnic groups weren't pushed out of their exclusive neighborhoods to mix and mingle with others, German immigrants wouldn't know the joys of tacos or Polish sausages. None of us would. And that would be a tragedy. Gentrification is not ethnic cleansing. Not in America. In America, gentrification has taken advantage of low property values so that we can all build our lives and our businesses and our families and truly thrive and achieve the American dream. Let's look at Bucktown, a Chicago neighborhood, as a result of how gentrification has created improved living conditions. As you probably know, Bucktown earned its name from all of the goats raised in the neighborhood when it was the epicenter of what was called the Polish downtown. The residents called it Cozy Prairie, which translates to Goat Prairie. Ever been to Goat Prairie? Anybody? Sound of applause? Round of applause? No? Yeah. Um, well, it smells like goat shit. And goat shit stinks. I was going to bring in some goat shit to prove this point and support this argument, but thankfully there is no goat shit lying around Bucktown anymore. And we have gentrification to thank for that. In the 1980s, in Bucktown, as is often the case, artists were the first to begin moving into the traditionally Polish neighborhood. During Reagan's America, the Polish downtown had taken a downturn, and the low-rent options and unique cultural identity was attractive and even necessary for the artist community. It provided them a perspective into immigrant Americana while giving them roofs over their head 
over their heads and space to create. With the influx of new residents that were not exclusively Polish, Bucktown and its neighbor Wicker Park witnessed a boom of new businesses and experiences that brought the neighborhood to life, reinvigorated art galleries, restaurants, bars, music halls. Without change, Bucktown would still be a field of goat shit and there wouldn't be a target on Elson and Western. <laughs> a neighborhood experiencing gentrification, renewal, renovation, experiences a growth of diverse businesses and therefore diverse consumers looking for diverse and exciting entertainment. In the last few years alone, Bucktown Wicker Park has seen the opening of a Nike store, which was half a block from an Asics store. The Asics store closed, but there's still a Reebok store and an Adidas store. All of these are within a short walking distance from each other. And thanks to this ongoing renewal of a once dilapidated area, you now have three choices of top brand athletic apparel. <laughs> now this answers the need of the Bucktown community because there is a Bucktown Athletic Club now, which is a really nice gym with spinning classes and yoga and treadmills. There's also the 606, 606, which, without the city's desire to invest and improve and renovate its deteriorated areas, would still be a weed-riddled abandoned rail line serving no other purpose but providing a place for riffraff to consume their drugs and plot their crimes against the citizenry. <laughs> Nothing good has ever happened on abandoned train tracks. <laughs> the gym, the 606, and the athletic apparel stores promote healthy living Running along the 606, walking along its path with your family is a far better way to live a life, is a far better way to live a, a better life compared to breathing in goat shit. As a reward for the residents' hard work to live healthful lives, there's a Stan's Donuts next to the Damon Blue Line stop. <laughs> Fucking Stan's Donuts. Stan's would not exist if not for gentrification. There's a Lululemon store in Bucktown. And any pervert worth their salt has gentrification to thank for that. <laughs> the new storefronts, the 606, the continued arrival of upperly mobile residents looking to support these neighborhood businesses increase the beauty and the financial health of our city. That was not the case before gentrification began. Take a moment to consider Lincoln Park's Clybourne Corridor. Kingsbury used to be a, a dark, scary place for strip clubs. But now there's a Whole Foods right next to the strip clubs. <laughs> so you can get titties in your face and then go wash it down with an $8 bottle of water infused with a mint spray. <laughs> yeah. Yes, this leads to the ine inevitable rise of property value and can price out longtime residents who cannot afford the hikes in rent or property taxes. But there is nothing written in America's documents about people never having to move or just to changing times? The Declaration of Independence says that we have the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit is an active noun. Gentrification is the pursuit of happiness. It encourages, sure, even forces, us to get off our asses and reinvent ourselves for the better. Seek new land. It is the American way to always be writing our own history and redefining our destiny. In Chicago, Gentrification tells us to go west, young man. If things were to stay the same, we'd be Russia. Is that what you want? <laughs> Janet? <laughs> Chicago is historically and currently a terribly segregated city. That's not the kind of city I want to live in. Is that the kind of city you want to live in? I'm not saying that if you oppose gentrification, you're a racist. <laughs> but true progressivism, true progressivism requires the blending of cultures and the changing of neighborhoods. Gentrification is progress. Gentrification is a boon. Thank you. David Himmel. Only thing I can, I, I, the only thing I can actually say is that it, uh, in an abandoned railroad track, Kevin Bacon danced. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, but the whole soundtrack to that movie was Kenny Loggins. So yeah, no, that no, no, don't mess with Footloose. Are you serious? All right, we're gonna do Footloose next, next, next month. month. There you go. Yep. All right, Judge, Gentrification Boone, Gentrification Bane. Who is the winner in your opinion? Number one. Me okay. or him? Him! David Himmel wins. Gentrification is a universal good. Give him a hand. Second topic will be call-out culture. Is it destructive or instructive? High card wins. Show your card. You have a six. You have a jack. David Barish wins. Would you like to go first or second, Mr. Barish? I'll set the table. He is going to go first. Ladies and gentlemen, David Barish, give him a hand. Let me start with a simple list in alphabetical order. Amber Anderson, Asia Argento, Rosanna Arquette, Jessica Barth, Ambra Batalana Gutierrez, Kate Beckinsdale, Jules Bindi, Zoe Brock, Cynthia Burr. There are 84 names on this list. 84 women who have accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual impropriety, and much of that impropriety is a class X felony here in Illinois. Would polite conversation with this man of immense power have done anything? Could you call Harvey or have your agent or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your mom say, Hey, Harv, I think you should keep that dick of yours in your pants. And I think you shouldn't be touching me. And if I say no, I'd still like to be an actor, a director, a producer, a gaffer, a human. Okay? That didn't work so well, did it? Nobody had the guts to confront him, and nobody would listen, and nobody seemed to admit that they knew what was going on until a few women had the guts to call out the, and it seems so appropriate here, motherfucker, until Ashley Judd, Asia Argento, Mira Sorvino, Rosanna Arquette, and the other early callers out, those are heroes. If they had not done so, the pervert would still be wielding his power, waving his magic wand, threatening careers, bodies, dignity of women in an industry where he could basically do whatever the fuck he wanted. And once they called it out, it was a clarion to bring out all the victims. You read Sel Selma Hayek's poignant piece in the Times, didn't you? She was finally free to call Harvey a monster. And you all saw the women in black last night. This started with a call out. If not for the calling out of Harvey Weinstein, we would still have Louis C.K. stroking himself in front of female comics. Kevin Spacey using his power to bed young men. Charlie Ray Rose walking around the office au naturel. Matt, Ro Matt Lauer not knowing that an expose is investigative journalism. And Roy Moore stalking them all. Yes, in a world where we have been blaming the victim she shouldn't dress that way. She shouldn't have drunk so much. She shouldn't be so pretty, even though I only like them hot. She's only a girl, and who are you going to believe? Calling out has turned the tables on toxic men. How long were priests praying on young boys before the Boston Globe called out a litany of clergy that grew to a number that staggered even the reporters? This was not an isolated incident. 271 clergy committed heinous acts. Now, the sexual acts weren't heinous. A knock up the behind from two consenting adults can be a lovely thing. But non-consensual sex, forced sex, sex with one too young to consent, sex with one over whom you yield power, this is heinous. And why did this repeat itself in heinouses, in parishes across the country and the world? Because nobody opened their mouth. Nobody said a word. Nobody called out. 
We didn't want to believe these poor, formerly innocent children. We didn't want to besmirch the church in this silence protected the priests who violated children while pretending to be moral authorities. Shame on all of us. Silence aided and abetted these abusers until the noise, the sound, the calling out, the inescapable and open above ground activity stopped these moles from abusing quietly where we couldn't see or smell or hear anything. Sins would still be committed. Lives would still be upended. Souls and bodies would still be abused if these brave people did not call them out and wake us up to stop them. Now, I'm not telling you intelligent people that we should start posting scarlet letters. In living in a world where people are afraid to be themselves, afraid to act, I mean, I've already heard pushback from my kind, from dudes, who say they don't know how to act. They don't know what to say. They don't know if they'll get in trouble simply for making a joke or engaging in locker room talk. There is a slope here. Telling your male co-worker that you want to buy another cupcake girl because the young lady who runs the cupcake truck is kind of hot may be tasteless, but hardly father for calling out. But telling this to the young lady lets her know that you are a douche. And it goes downhill from there. And if you don't know any better, it's high time you learned. Now, you say so-called locker room is a place where you talk dirty amongst yourselves. Look in the mirror. Be real. Because if that talk, that sentiment behind the talk, manifests into action, then if you treat women, men, children, and others like your personal chattel, like toys, like servants, like supplicants, you are a misogynist, a miscreant, a criminal, and you should be called out because doing so seems to be the only way to overcome the omerta, the mafia silence that has protected you and subjected others since the beginning of time. Now, I'm not advocating calling out everything. I mean, a family member was erroneously charged with DUI by a suburban Barney Fife, and he found his name in the local police blotter. Yes, drunk driving is a societal problem, but the allegation isn't always true. And, but, and it's also not always the same as a conviction, but 84 arrests? Right, Harvey? Now, I'm not saying we should call out simply for being an asshole. I mean, our own Don Hall was called out for failing a list, all of a storyteller's accomplishments. But nobody should lose a job simply because he's a toad and he shits on lily pads. And also, when one toad publicly calls another a douche, it can be seen as a case of the toad calling the frog green. The Duke lacrosse players will tell us that calling out can be premature, and they're right. Accusers who lie are bigger scum than Don because they make people question the real victims of abuse. We don't want to fail to call out the Harveys of the world because one fool falsely accused the lacrosse players. We do need to check before calling out. We can't reflexively cry wolf. And that's why the Boston Globe verified the complaints before warning us of pedophile priests. Now, calling out doesn't always work. We still have the orange scourge making America squirm again by putting his little hands in places where they do not belong. But his attempts to silence critics will fail, and he will be called out for improprieties that are only metaphorically sexual, as our nation cries out for him to use some lube. Calling out is a nuclear weapon, and it should be used judiciously, but it must be in our arsenal. We call out abusers, not assholes. We call out those who have abused power, not those who support Israel or Palestine, Trump or Bernie, Raum or Rauner, the Cubs or the Sox. I don't care who does drugs. I don't care who watches porn. I don't care who donates to causes. I don't care who shows up at a march. But I care about the touchy boss. I care about the racist who wants to go back to Charlottesville and start some shit again. I care about the dweeb who says he's threatened by another person's sexuality and resorts to violence. I care about those who thump the Bible with one hand and fondle youngsters with the other. It's got to be public or nothing will change. 
We must call people out because silence abets and perpetuates the predation, the misogyny, the abuse, and the abuse of power. Thank you. David Barish. Yes, the, the bane of being a slightly, slightly public figure. Yes, I own that. Ladies and gentlemen, for the other side, Risa McDonald, give her a hand. Sorry, you can't hear me over all this white noise? Let me turn down my white noise machine. Because I have a microphone and a podcast at my disposal tonight, and I'm here to tell you all that call-out culture is full of shit. Yeah, I said it. Did you change your mind? Of course you didn't. You know why? Because either you already agree with me, or you stopped listening as soon as I insulted you and turned you into an adversary. Which is exactly why call-out culture is full of shit. You know why else call-out culture is full of shit? Because it violates the laws of physics. Let's take a look at Newton's third law which states that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. You call me a libtard, I call you a knuckle-dragger. You call me a baby-killer because I'm pro-choice, I call you a baby-killer because you want to carry an assault rifle. Act. React. Before you know it, sweet little church ladies in Alabama are excusing Roy Moore's adventures in babysitting because, hey, what's a little pedophilia when a Democrat is coming for your guns and your babies? <laughs> Roy may have lost the election, and no one is happier than I am that the only pretty little filly he's fucking these days is quite literally the horse he rode in on. <laughs> but while we may have won the battle, we lost the tug of war. Half of Alabama still voted for the motherfucker, so really the only minds we've changed are people who used to agree with us that pedophilia is bad, but now think that asking for the mother's permission makes it a-okay. We've eroded a clear moral imperative, but hey, don't we all feel good about all those equal and opposite memes we crafted? Our collective social media pillory also violates the law of entropy, which states that the universe is always moving from order to disorder. I can't keep my kid's bedroom clean for more than 10 minutes, but the call-out clatch seems to think it can keep its ideological house in an impossible stasis, frozen in time where no one ever evolves or learns from their mistakes, and everyone agrees on a universally accepted definition of what it means to be the right kind of ally, the right kind of victim, the right kind of feminist, the right kind of queer, and the right kind of mom. But this is never going to happen. And do you know why? Because of McDonald's law of assholery, which states that people are assholes. Was it a dick move for Louis C.K. to jerk off in front of female comedians? Hell yes. Was it misogynistic? I don't know. He strikes me as the type of equal opportunity asshole who would just as readily fart in his brother's pillow or pants one of his bros in public because he's an asshole. <laughs> Guess what? Humans are complex creatures, and two things can be true at the same time. Louis C.K. can be an asshole, or even a misogynist, and still be funny. He can also be a good father, a loyal friend, and someone who secretly gives lots of money to homeless children. Or not. He could just be an asshole, or a misogynist, or both. The point is that I don't know, because it's a lot more complex than trial by social media is capable of processing. So, if we're gonna reduce everyone down to their bare assholery, 
and excise everything else, then I'd like to call out a few more assholes tonight. Thomas Edison was a white Anglo male asshole who exploited a poor Slavic immigrant by the name of Tesla, stole his idea for the light bulb, and liked to marry significantly younger women. At least that's what the internet tells me. Of course, it's really a lot more complicated than that, but I only have seven minutes tonight, so let's just call him an asshole, get rid of all the light bulbs, and go back to the days of candlelight and kerosene. John Lennon? Imagine there's no assholes if you want to. <laughs> but he acknowledged in a 1980 Playboy interview that he had anger management issues and frequently hit women. Clearly, we must all stop listening to Beatles music. Exce except for Octopus's Garden and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Because they're okay, they were written by those other Beatles. In fact, we should also stop listening to any musician who was influenced by the Beatles, including Dave Grawl, the Beach Boys, Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, and, well, pretty much all post-60s music. Because really, isn't it all fruit of the same poison tree? And then there's Gandhi, who didn't even bother to hide his naked sleepovers with young girls decades his junior, some of whom were related to the asshole. He called his naked time a celibacy test, claiming that it was his moral duty to test his member. Alrighty then. I guess we're going to have to give India back to the British, reverse any parts of Martin Luther King's civil rights record that were inspired by Gandhi, and discredit civil disobedience as a means of social change. Wait a minute. This just in. George Harrison attributed his personal mantra to Gandhi. Shit. There goes while my guitar gently weeps. It's official. The only Beatles song anyone is allowed to listen to anymore is Octopus's Garden. I'm not saying that assholes should get a pass. There are irredeemable monsters out there, and they need to be taken down. Hard. But when we look for reasons to be offended, when we conflate all assholery into one undifferentiated narrative of victimization, we're not helping ourselves. Why, you ask? Because call-out culture, for all its delusions of empowerment, can't exist without a victim. And it still puts a penis, or a skin color, or a religion, or a giant orange, very stable toddler genius at the center of the story. We lose the opportunity to control our own narrative, to write our own ending before we become the victim. Which brings me to Weinstein's theory of asshole relativity. <laughs> this states that not all assholes are created equal, and individual asshole thresholds are an unstable element. Outside of what should be some universally agreed upon taboos, are you listening, Alabama? We are never, ever going to agree on what offends us collectively. My hilarious blowjob joke might be another waitress's hostile workplace. Or it might be an invitation for our unhappily married manager to corner me in the stockroom, pull a condom out of his pocket, and insist that I put it over a cut finger because it needs to stay waterproof. <laughs> yes, that really happened. <laughs> I have a pretty high asshole threshold, so I simply replied, Dave, Put that thing away before you get hurt. It's clearly too big for my finger, which makes it way too big for you. <laughs> Don't be, come on everybody, join me, an asshole. Then I went back to collecting the tips that were going to pay for a semester abroad and never looked back. You know what I didn't do? Spend 10 years feeling victimized by that letting it fester, staying, what, what did uh, Leanne Tweeden say again, quietly angry? And then outing him in a viral blog post, long after I'd lost the opportunity to help him evolve. <laughs> There's a difference between burning down the house and constructive, 
confrontation that cuts off low-level assholery before it turns into Kevin Spacey. <laughs> but until we learn to distinguish the difference, all we're doing is drawing a thousand Newtonian lines in the sand, preaching to a choir of paralyzed would-be allies who are too terrified of unintentionally offending to do more than echo a self-congratulatory refrain. Meanwhile, all that white noise provides a perfect cover for the real assholes. Like the asshole mom who thinks her gluten-free lifestyle is superior to my birthday cupcakes. Or this asshole sitting over here who couldn't even pronounce Kate Beckinsale's name correctly. <laughs> but last of all, let's not forget the asshole who had seven minutes and used more like eight and a half. Thank you. The only thing I can take away is that pretty much on either argument, my assholery is moderately acceptable. That's all I got. I mean, either one, either one. Say, I'm okay, fine, cool. All right, so we have call-out culture is instructive. Call-out culture is destructive. Janet, the judge, who wins this match? Instructive. Instructive, all right. David Barish wins the match. Give him a hand. Third topic, Michael Bay, hack or genius? Michael Bay is a goddamn genius. When Michael Bay was 11, he tied firecrackers to a toy train and filmed it blowing up. <laughs> Absolutely no one in this room is surprised to hear this. <laughs> this is not what makes him a genius. And Michael Bay is a goddamn genius. Michael Bay directed one of my favorite action movies, The Rock, starring peak mature Sean Connery and peak everyman Nicolas Cage and Ed Harris in his first major role as a hard-ass villain. This, this movie and this cast alone do not make Michael Bay a genius. And by the way, Michael Benjamin Bay, <laughs> goddamn genius. In 2013, Michael Bay took a break from space robots and directed a comedy. <laughs> about real-life bumbling burglars in Miami called Pain and Gain. Yeah. It features a genuinely funny Dwayne Johnson grilling severed hands on a barbecued grill to try to get rid of their fingerprints. <laughs> the film was a brave move and it tanked at the box office. It's not good. It constantly reminds you that it would have been much better under someone else's direction. <laughs> It's a small comedy that's overproduced and has unnecessary explosions. <laughs> it's worth seeing, though, only because Dwayne Johnson is genuinely funny. You saw it, right? I love it. He's funny in it. He's hysterical. He's, he's, the, best, he's the best reason to watch it. Yeah. And uh, even though it was an attempt to move away from billion-dollar blockbusters, again, a brave move, it does not make Michael Bay a genius. Michael Bay? Genius! Goddamn genius! In 1995, Michael Bay's first feature film as a director was released. Miami detectives Marcus Burnett and Mike Lowry investigate $100 million of seized mafia heroin, which is stolen from a secure police vault. Internal Affairs suspects that it was an inside job and threatens to shut down the entire department unless they recover the drugs within five days. <laughs> Bad Boys was made for $19 million and made back 10 times that in its initial release. It showed the world that Will Smith could be a movie star and that Martin Lawrence could be Martin Lawrence. <laughs> this was Michael Bay's first feature film, his first. And it still does not make him a genius. And let me tell you, Michael Bay, 
Michael Bay did not leap from the unknown to direct Hollywood blockbusters. He studied filmmaking in LA, in college, and worked as an intern on Raiders of the Lost Ark. He studied at the feet of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg at their very best. His job was to organize and file the storyboards. The whole time he worked on Raiders, he thought the movie sucked. <laughs> This is true. When it was a huge success, his takeaway, put the female lead in inappropriate clothing and blow shit up. So you may be asking, what makes Michael Bay such a goddamn genius? It's the in-between. From 1989 to 1994, Michael Bay directed over 35 music videos. All artists you've heard of, Styx, Greg Allman, Richard Marks, Meatloaf, Vanilla Ice, <laughs> Chicago, Tina Turner, Wilson Phillips, Lionel Richie, and the reinvented for the 80s, Donald Osmond. <laughs> the poor man's George Michael. <laughs> or actually the rich white man's George Michael. <laughs> Does such a prolific collaboration with international stars and bands make him a genius? No. No, 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 no. Because while you have heard of these artists, you have never heard of the songs they committed deep into the MTV archives. Not one single hit among them. Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell 2, anyone? Hum a few bars? <laughs> Lionel Richie's Do It To Me. Yeah. You really? You know that one? Okay, I know that. Yeah. Donald Osmond anything? Anything. Anything sans Marie or any Osmond plural? <laughs> Yet amidst this raging torrent of musical flotsam, there was one lone song that rose above the others. A siren call to the deep pockets of Tinseltown. In 1991, Michael Bay directed the one hit from the band The Divinals, When I Think of You, I Touch Myself. <laughs> Love it or hate it, you've heard it. And if you were a teenage boy in 1991, you saw that video, and you did indeed touch yourself. <laughs> Repeatedly. Hell, if you were a straight male in 1991, you yanked your motorboat cord to this video. I rubbed one out researching for this presentation. For nostalgia's sake. I'm, I'm actually masturbating right now. I can just imagine Michael Bay's pitch for this video. Hey, your lead singer's hot. How about a filmer singing, rolling around while other hot women in some abandoned mansion also writhe around in the corridors? The story? There are hot women writhing around. End of story. That's enough of that. I can't, I won't be able to finish the, the presentation. <laughs> that video gave producers, mega Hollywood producers, Jerry Buck, Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, enough of a boner between the two of them <laughs> to take a chance on an untested and not very good young director oh. to make the leap from a fading music video industry to blockbuster action films. Michael Bay created his own lifeline. Yeah. There, there lies the genius. <laughs> Michael Bay still does what he created in that video. He makes worlds where hot women look at men like me, and declare they want to touch themselves while I shoot at bad guys and blow things up. <laughs> Michael Bay has a message for all men, especially young men in puberty. You have a boner. And it's okay if you have your boner and save the world too. <laughs> In tribute to Michael Bay, goddamn genius, I will leave you with the lyrics of Donald Osmond's Soldier of Love. So you heard that I'm a rebel with a heart made of stone. 
I got a restless spirit that nobody can own. If a picture tells a story, won't you listen to mine? I'm searching for the answer, but it's so hard to find. You'll see much deeper when you read between the lines, because there's a fire burning in my eye. Like a thief in the night who can't get enough, I am willing to fight, because I'm a soldier in love. Each time I fall down, I get on my feet again. I'm going to win this battle in the end. Sha-la-la-la, la-la-la. When the going gets rough, sha-la-la, la-la-la. I'm a soldier of love. <laughs> yeah! Joe James! All right! Hey. Good stuff. Oh my god. Hey. All right! And now, on the flip side of that conversation, Brian Sweeney. Hi. Hi. Yeah. In 2017, just a couple weeks back, several new American breakfast cereals <laughs> hit the shelves of all your local grocery stores, all of our local grocery stores. Among these, most importantly, were such brands as such cereals as Cinnamon Frosted Flakes, Apple Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Pecan and Maple Brown Sugar Honey Bunches of Oats, <laughs> Hot Cocoa Cocoa Puffs, Cap'n Crunch Blueberry Pancake Crunch Cereal, Chocolate Peanut Butter Cheerios, Banana Nut Cheerios, Chocolate Peanut Butter Cheerios, as I said, and Very Berry Cheerios. Thank you. All of these cereals serve their purpose as sweet, sugary garbage that you wolf handfuls of into your mouth in between bong rips as you sit on your couch binge watching 13 Reasons Why. Oh, Clay, why didn't you confess your feelings to Hannah sooner? You all failed her. <laughs> Oh, Olivia, stop that sex maniac. Is that better? Whatever. Anyway, Janet, what do you watch? What show? Any TV show, literally. Not TV? There you go. Hey, Ice-T, you can be like, man, you telling me that this guy, so that's what you're watching. Cool. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, Oh, by the way, I love SVU, Mariska Hargitay. Uh, Jerry Orbach, The Bells. The Bells is sorely missed. Come back, Munch. He does come back from time to time. <sighs> but as I'm sure you probably noticed, these cereals were all just variations on an existing cereal. There was no true innovations because innovation is a risk, and risk Risk, by definition, is not a guarantee. You know what is a guarantee? Apple cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> you, if you haven't, has anyone tasted it? Okay, no one else? Now I'm sure, and Don, you can attest to this. And Don, we've never met. I don't know who you are. <laughs> Uh, you already know what it's going to taste like. Everyone, when you heard that, you thought, first, you were like, what? And then you were like, hmm. And then you were like, no, that's, that's not good. You shouldn't like that. But then you were like, but. If no one was around, you'd be like, hmm. And then you'd take some. Like when the kids leave or whatever, you'd be like, I bought this bullshit for you. Here, you guys shouldn't be eating this. And then they go to school, and you're like, mom, mom, mom. Because you already know what it will taste like. Like when it hits you, you won't be like, holy shit, is that crab meat? Like you won't feel that. You'll, 
you know how that will taste, and it's going to be amazing because it will meet and possibly slightly exceed the expectations that you have. If anyone ever tastes apple cinnamon toast crunch, you m will never say like, ew. You'll always be like, hmm. Or if you're alone, you'll be like, god damn, this is my favorite cereal. And then when people are like, what's your favorite cereal? You're like, I don't know, Raisin Bran, because you want to sound cool. <laughs> It's okay, we're all friends here. It's a safe space, especially you, Janet. <laughs> you'll eat it, you'll be happy for a few moments. And what is wrong with that? In the modern era, innovation doesn't exist. It's a constant bone of contention on, not contention, just, uh, thing that people constantly talk about when they want to be boring, about how America doesn't innovate, and I'm sure you've seen that Jeff Daniels thing where he's like, America doesn't do anything, and people, and like your dad is like, this is true, and post it on Facebook, and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but it gives us comfort, the variations on a theme, it gives us comfort to not have surprises. Comfort. It's the number one thing that we as human beings crave, to not have to constantly worry and constantly struggle. We want to have a set routine. Our ancestors, they constantly worry. They constantly struggle. Oh, shit, I'm going to eat. Oh, no, I'm going to eat this berry and then die or, you know, whatever. Oh, these wisdom teeth are helping me eat tree bark, but now I want meat. <laughs> We want to have a set routine. We want to sleep in a bed, wake up, go to a job during the day, and then be like, oh, I hate being here. But like when you're not there, you don't know what the hell to do with yourself. You're just constantly looking for things, and then like you sleep, and then you wake up with a headache or whatever, and you're like, what the hell did I do? Tomorrow I'll be better, and you're not. You're sitting there eating apple cinnamon toast crunch all day. So you want to wake up, go to bed, or go to bed, wake up, go to a job during the day, go home, eat dinner, go online and shoot like five or six major cum ropes to Mia Malkova's anal scene where she's getting in the button, her sexy feet are right in the camera on the website footsiebabes.com. <laughs> Just an example. <laughs> Not you, Janet. <clears throat> Where was I? Uh, a hack is a person who gets the job done and gets the results that are expected of them. They don't try to reinvent the wheel. They go into a job and are trusted to completely deliver what is expected. They have one thing to do, and they do it, and they've proven themselves. When you ask your friend a recommendation, Janet, I'm sure you've done this, Janet. <laughs> A trusted car mechanic to work on your transmission because it was really snowy in that parking lot and you kept moving it forward and reverse trying to get it and then your transmission just stopped and you were like, oh, what's wrong? Not you, Janet, me, because I'm dumb, you're smart. But the rest of us non-Janets understand that this is something that we have to do. And the mechanic that you want is a hack. He is. That's what that means. Someone who's going to give you exactly what you need. He's not going to improvise a new device when you come in and you're like, I'd like a transmission. He's like, okay, well, I've done the transmission for you, and it's a new device, but it's got a new type of metal, metal alloy only found in pieces of a ginkgo leaf, and you're like, ah, oh, shit. And then you try it, and like you start like flying or whatever, but you're like, I kind of just wanted to drive, dude. And he's like, ah, and then... His inventions start exploding behind him, and he's like, oh, we got to go back, or whatever. <laughs> now, when you see the name Michael Bay, you know what you're getting. You want Michael Bay. If you go to a Michael Bay movie, and it turns out to be a movie where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his phone, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, you'd be like, disappointed. You'd be like, what? In the same way, you taste Apple Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and it's like, <laughs> just bland Cheerios. You'd be like... What the f what is happening here? <laughs> Janet, what's going on, Janet? 
And Janet would be like, I, I have nothing to do with this. I'm. <laughs> so you go to Transformers The Last Night, starring Mark Wahlberg and Anthony Hopkins, and uh, that's true, and <laughs> you know what you want. You, you, that's what you want. You want to see Michael Bay do Michael Bay shit. Now, if after the show, if after this show, you go to footsiebabies.com to watch Mia Malkova's anal scene where she's getting it in the butt and uh, her sexy feet are right in the camera and it actually turns out to be Mia Malkova fully clothed giving a demonstration on how to custom, custom thermofoil cabinetry, you would be like, you'd be upset. You'd say, Brian, I went to footsiebabes.com and watched that video and it wasn't Mia Malkova getting it in the butt with her sexy feet right in the camera at all. I shot no major cum ropes and you would be correct to feel cheated. It's the comfort of knowing what you want. It's important for your own mental health, your own being. Recently, we all bore witness to a genuine surprise with the 2016 election. Hillary Clinton was co-founder of Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, first female chair of the Legal Service Corps, first female partner at Rose Law Firm, first lady of the United States, first female senator for the New York for two terms, secretary of state, a career politician, a political hack. Guess who wasn't a hack? <laughs> the man who won the presidency of the United States of America. Michael Bay has a clear set of skills, which is why studios entrust him with billion-dollar franchises. And we live in a time where nothing is guaranteed. Nothing except, to paraphrase a oft-used thing, death taxes and Michael Bay always giving us Michael Bay movies. Always. <laughs> it's comforting. Like being a child, knowing your parents were down the hall if you had a nightmare. You get to crawl on mommy's bed and she will tell you you're safe. Everything's okay. You're safe. You're safe. By the flippant definition of a hack, that's negatively used, we must also understand that mommy is a hack. So I ask this, do we want unpredictability? Or do we want to be sure that when we get out of bed tomorrow, our floor will be there? That we won't just fall through it into a dark abyss of nothingness? We think we want unpredictability, that's exciting, but when we actually get it, say in a relationship with a person, and you always get kept guessing, and, and shit, I don't know where I stand with this person, and oh no, they're talking to this person, what are they gonna do? You realize that reliability is the better option. Now, mom down the hall, always ready to make you feel safe. Romantic partners that treat you like, treat you with respect and dignity. Apple Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and Michael Bay movies. Yeah. These are what we all want. Thank you. And you thought the Michael Bay topic was a throwaway topic, didn't you? When you heard the topic, you went, oh yeah, that's the least important. No. It's a big fucking deal. All right, Janet. You have Michael Bay is a goddamn genius. Or Michael Bay is a comforting hack. <laughs> Who wins? I like my comforting hacks. All right. Yeah. Brian Sweeney wins the match. Brian, yes, give a hand. And that is Bug House. Let me say a couple of things. Number one, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate you coming out, uh, supporting what we do. If you enjoyed the show, really all you got to do is go on social media or just go to a friend, go to work tomorrow and say, I saw this fucking great show. And then just tell them about the show. That's all you got to do. Um, we are here, the, and it's not the first of every month, but a Monday in every month here at Haymarket. Let's give Haymarket Pub and Brewery a big hand. And make sure you give our lovely 
bartender. Good tips, because tips, thank you is nice, but tips pay the bills. That's the way it works. Um, if you aren't familiar with Literate Ape, I suggest, if you have time, go to literateape.com and check out what we write. Um, I know that David writes, I write. Joe James, who you laughed at, writes. Brian Sweeney writes. And there's a lot of writing. It's a lot of different perspectives. It's, it's sometimes Paul Teodo is here, and he writes fiction for us. Dana German is here, and she writes for us. So, uh, yeah, we've got writing. That's what we do. We write and we do events. So with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to Buckhound.